even though he's been off to Yale and does support the civil rights movement. He never uses the word nigger anymore, except when he's knocking back a schlitz down at the local beer joint, and he honestly doesn't feel that counts. It's just to keep the homeboys thinking I'm still one of them, he tells himself with conscious cynicism. Like a sweet-faced woman feels she has to say fuck once in a while when she's out with the girls, so they won't think she's too prissy. Means nothing. After three days of chilly fogs and rain that made working outdoors miserable, the low-pressure system has finally moved on out to sea, and proper spring weather has filled in behind with hot sunshine and a warm west wind. Michael Vickery's got those two day laborers back clearing the slope, down by the edge of the water, while he stacks bricks for an outdoor kiln on the other side of the barn. Of course, there are chemical weed killers that would knock out the poison oak, briars, and bullace vines, but Michael's troubled by fish kills in other North Carolina creeks and rivers, and he wants to mend the damage done to Possum Creek by Dancy tenants who laced these fields with chemical fertilizers and pesticides and never had a minute's uneasiness for what might be happening to the water table. The hired men would spray if Mr. Michael told them to, but grubbing roots by hand stretches out the pay at a time of year when farm work's thin. Too late to plant tobacco, too early to start suckering it. So it's yes, sir, Mr. Michael, whatever you say, Mr. Michael. Want us to work up from the creek today, instead of down from the barn where we started? Sure thing, Mr. Michael. Sweat pours off their bodies and drenches their shirts as they toil in the steamy morning sunlight. And each time they pause to get a drink of water, they seem to hear something downwind across the creek. A baby pig, maybe? Ain't no pigs over yonder, says one. Closest place with pigs is probably Mr. Kezzy, and he ain't got but a couple of fattening hogs. Might be a cat or a mockingbird. Used to be one had set up on our chimney and sound like the rusty hinge on our screen door. They swing bush knife and mattock and talk about some of the odd noises they've heard mockingbirds mimic. Only that don't sound like no mockingbird, says the first man stubbornly. The sound drifts fitfully on the soft western breeze, never lasting really long enough to get a good fix on it. When Michael Vickery comes down to see what they want him to bring them from the store for a mid-morning snack, they tell him to listen. He does. But naturally, the bird or cat, or whatever it is, chooses that time to go silent. The white man shrugs, takes their drink orders, and says he'll be back in about thirty minutes, because he has to run by the brickyard before they close for the weekend. As the roar of his pickup fades over the rise, heading for the highway, both men ease off on their tools. A drowsy, humid stillness hangs over the creek bank. Even the birds are mute in this hot morning air. Just when they've decided that whatever it was is gone for good, it comes again. A high, thin note floating back up the quiet water. The first workman drops his mattock and heads for the creek. 
some little creature's in trouble, he says. For some reason, it's a pitiful noise to him, halfway between a kitten and a young piglet so hopelessly entangled in barbed wire that it's almost resigned itself to death. And the older man just can't let it go. Together, the two track the thin mews downstream to the mill. They splash across the broken spillway and finally follow their ears into the old millhouse itself. And that's when they abruptly connect the cries with what's been occupying the hearts and souls of half of Cotton Grove ever since Wednesday. They look at each other fearfully. One of them is still carrying his axe-handled bush knife, and he holds the sharp hooked blade in readiness as they enter the dim stone building. The other grabs up a couple of potato-sized rocks, and he, too, is on guard. Field mice rustle among the debris near the door, but the two men barely notice. The crying comes from overhead and sounds exhausted to them now. Who's up there? they shout. Anybody there? The mewing cries continue, and it almost breaks the heart of the older man because now he's surer than ever what it is up there crying. Half a lifetime ago, he listened to cries just that pitiful, as his only baby son wasted away from diphtheria in his cradle. As he mounts the steps, a stench meets his nose, carrion, and body wastes. Part of the tin roof has collapsed at the gable end of the loft overlooking the creek, so there's enough light to see clearly. The cries come from a very young infant strapped in a molded plastic carrier. She's soaked in her own urine and stinks of putrid diapers, but that's not what makes the men want to retch. It's the white woman who lies on the stone floor beside the baby. She's face up. Her body is clad in the long-sleeved black jersey, white jeans, and flat-heeled slippers the radio said she'd been wearing when she disappeared three days ago. Blowflies are thick all over her pretty face, and maggots are already working the clots of blood and brains beneath her long, dark hair. April, 1990 Chapter 1 Rainy Days and Mondays Always Get Me Down His green and vermilion topknot was as colorful as a parrot's, and in Colleton County's courtroom that afternoon, with its stripped-down modern light oak benches and pale navy carpet, a cherry-head parrot couldn't have looked much more exotic than this Michael Zarnecki. Nineteen years old. Tattooed eyeliner on bloodshot eyes. Stainless steel skull and crossbones dangling from his left earlobe. His jaw was purple from where it had banged the steering wheel when he ran off the road a little past three that morning, and he was still wearing black, skinny-legged jeans and the electric orange and green boogie-on-down-to-Florida sweatshirt he'd had on when the state troopers plucked him off I-95 and perched him in our brand-new jail. From his own perch, the black-robed judge frowned down at Zarnecki, like an elderly cowbird, while Assistant District Attorney Kevin Foster read the charges. Speeding, 74 in a 65 zone. 
driving while impaired. Simple possession of marijuana. You got an attorney? asked Judge Hobart, who knew quite well that he'd appointed me that morning when the calendar was first called, and that this was why I was now seated at the same table with the defendant. I stood up. Your Honor, I represent Mr. I glanced again at the court calendar in my hand and tackled the unfamiliar name with more confidence than I felt. Mr. Zarnecki. Zarnecki, my client corrected me shyly. Not represented him too well, Miss Knott, if you can't even say his name right, the judge sniffed. How does he plead? I'd worked it out with Kevin before lunch. He'd knocked a 78 down to 74 and had thrown out a piddling seatbelt violation and two charges of reckless and endangering, but we were stuck with DWI and simple possession. And I was stuck with punk hair, boogie on down to Florida, and a judge with many, many axes to grind. I-95 passes straight through the middle of Carlton County, North Carolina, linking Miami to New York. I've never actually looked into the wording of the billboard law that regulates signs along a federally funded highway, but it's lax enough that farmers here can rent their roadside land to advertise the locations of factory outlets that sell towels and sheets, name-brand clothing, and, of course, cheap cigarettes. Despite the tourist dollars, our stretch of I-95 would be a no-exit tunnel if Harrison Hobart had his druthers and he normally throws the book at any Yankees who stray off the interstate and into his court. Fortunately, it was only a week till the May primary.